listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what, the God, this is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts 10, 34 through 38. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Well, I want to tell you about one of the darkest places on earth that I've been. It was uh, 2011. And I'd gone with a handful of friends. Uh, I don't know if John Lawrence is in the room. John was there. We, we went to a Central Asian country uh, on the Caspian Sea called Azerbaijan. And uh, Emily was there, my wife Emily. She had our daughter Libby in her tummy at the time on the flight over. We were compiling a list of baby name ideas. And uh, so we were in this Central Asian country of Azerbaijan. We landed in Baku, and then we drove across the country to Genja. And a uh, funny story, John Lawrence and I were there, and then not enough Johns on the trip, so we also invited our friend John Reek, who lives in Tulsa, who some of you will know. And we were eating dinner at this Azeri family's house, and our friend John Reek is a very picky eater, and they put some strange organ meat from animals we did not recognize on the plate. And John was like, I don't want to be rude, but I can't eat it. So as like the focus of the table is over there, John is grabbing the organ meat and slipping it into his pockets. And we're 45 minutes into dinner and, you know, liver juice is going down his leg and all of the dogs from the house are coming and sniffing out John. That was the fun part of the story. But we made our way into Ginja and and this city in particular had a Muslim presence, but it felt more Soviet and atheist than anything else in its design, its architecture, just its vibe. 
And I would love to go back and learn more about this place that we visited, but we visited what, like in polite society, we would say was a mental health institution, but I will tell you, it felt like an asylum. It, it felt like a prison, and it, the, the conditions were not great. Cement floors that were wet and damp and Soviet-era beds, and people were like lurking in the shadows, and it was a pretty grim place. And I wish, I really wish I could know more about this trip that we went on, but at the end of the week, we'd been working with this English missionary named Neil, and Neil had gained special permission to take a handful of the folks who had been patients or what felt like inmates at this institution uh, in the van with us, and we went out to the Azari countryside for a picnic. And the transformation of seeing people like lurking in the shadows of this dank asylum out driving past shepherds with sheep in the Azari countryside was a, a really dynamic transformation. And then things started to get a little bit crazy when somebody busted out a radio and this began to happen. All of a sudden, a dance party breaks out. That is John Reek in the back left, who previously had liver juice going down his leg. Emily is just off camera with baby Libby in her stomach. And in that moment, it felt so profoundly beautiful to see the dignity and the joy of these people who were just letting it all hang out and breathing and dancing out in the Azari countryside. And it was one of those moments that makes you think, surely the kingdom of God is at hand and among us. That kind of transformation, a momentary for them reversal of fortune that makes you say the kingdom of God is at hand and it's among us. This kind of reversal of fortune, this change of events, this new thing really fits with the season of, Ad the season of epiphany that follows Advent and Christmas. The season of Epiphany originally was focused on the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's family. The, the Magi or the wise men are like the hero characters of that season. And in the, the churchy world, Epiphany is, uh, focuses on the new life that God wants to bring into the world. It's demonstrated by that color of green. And the church calendar is really neat because it helps us balance out our emotions and our practices. We have times of fasting and we have times of feasting. We have times of looking inward and being repentant, seasons like Advent and Lent. And we have seasons of, of celebration like Easter and Epiphany. And we also have times of looking up, Advent especially focused on the second coming of Jesus. And Epiphany, we remember how God wants to do a new thing. He wants to bring a spring to the earth, bring renewal to hearts that have grown cold in time. In this passage from Isaiah 42 that Will read for us, you may want to keep your Bible open to Isaiah 42. I'll reference it a number of times. Again and again, the Lord is talking about uh, the, the inclusion of the Gentiles. God's initial promises had been given to one ethnic group, the people of Israel, but he said it was not going to be like this forever. In fact, he told Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all of the families, all of the nations of the world. And we see it here in Isaiah 42. God's chosen one will bring justice to the nations. In him, the islands, the far-off places will put their hope. He'll be a light to the Gentiles. And it's very clear that what God is doing for those who are far off is not bringing some kind of just generic hope. He's not bringing some, like, 
like bargain brand lightness of heart, but he's bringing a specific concrete blessing to all of the nations of the world through the one that he's identified as his chosen one, his servant, the servant who's going to be anointed with the Spirit. But this chosen one who brings justice will not raise a ruckus. He's not going to come to activate an army. On the contrary, he says in verse 2, he will not shout or cry out, won't raise his voice in the streets. Picture these images. A bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. I like these two images. They're evocative images, a bruised reed. A reed's like a bamboo-like plant that would have grown by the rivers. And if you bend it end to end, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to crease, but it's not going to fully snap. And it's just hanging there limp. A bruised reed is using metaphorically to talk about those people who have been bruised by life and are just hanging by a thread. And some of us uh, may feel like we want to get into the sentimentality of a new year, but last year was just so hard. You feel like, can anyone lift me up again? The chosen one sent by the Lord, anointed by the Spirit who brings justice to the nations will deal gently with those bruised reeds. He'll handle them with a meek spirit. The second image it gives is of a smoldering wick a flame that's nearly extinguished. I remember one time, a handful of years ago, I was processing some big feelings that I have. I'm a big feeler. Emily's impressions of me feeling things, though, go a little bit like this. Like, like this is Emily being me, being very happy. I've never been happier in my life. And then this is Emily being me, being sad. I feel really sad right now. <laughs> but I feel it on the inside. And I remember processing some of my big feelings that looked emotionally muted with someone in my life a handful of years ago. And rather than comfort me, he said something that discouraged me all the more. And I said, man, I feel like you snuffed out my last candle. <laughs> Isaiah says that when the chosen one, the servant, comes upon a person like this who feels like a smoldering wick, like their last candle's about to run out of wax, He'll, he will not be the one to extinguish them. He'll deal gently with them. But he'll come, this is verse 7 of Isaiah 42, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Isaiah promises the people of all the earth that a day is going to come when God will anoint a person through whom he's going to bring this kind of renewal, dealing gently with the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks, the people who find themselves hanging by a thread. Uh, in the Psalms, uh, David speaks prophetically about one, the servant, the anointed one who was to come. And God says through David, I have found David, my servant, in the line of David, with sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. My arms will strengthen him. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, my rock, my savior. And I will appoint him to be the firstborn, the most exalted of all the kings of the earth. The servant that had been foretold by Isaiah, David said, was to be a son and was to be a king. And similarly, as we get to the New Testament, uh, the telling of the baptism story of Jesus and Matthew almost seems like a response story to the psalm. 
where, where the one who is anointed, the servant, will say, you are my father, my God, my rock, my savior. And in Matthew chapter 3, in the baptism narrative of Jesus, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The son would say, you are my father, my God, my rock. And the father says, yes, and you are my son that I love. With you I am well pleased. Later, when John the Baptist was imprisoned, I don't know if he was in a bad mood. I don't know if he was getting impatient with his cousin who was not getting about his public ministry as quickly as he wanted. But John felt the need to confirm with his cousin Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Are you the servant that Isaiah talked about? Are you the son and the king that David foresaw? Actually, is it, is it David? It might be Ethan. I can't remember. The psalmist foresaw. And Jesus sends back a message. When John asked about the deeds of the Messiah, Jesus said in response, go back and report to John what you have heard and seen, the blind received sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus says the proof is in the pudding. You wonder if I'm the one that Isaiah foresaw? I'm doing the stuff that Isaiah saw happening. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. This is the great thing about preaching from numerous passages of Scripture all at once. As we see, as Tim Ackey of the Bible Project says, that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. In Isaiah and in the Psalms and, and now in the, the gospel narratives, we see how these three are braided together and form a, a firm rope, something that we can hold on to. Isaiah foresaw the coming of the anointed one. The psalmist longed for him. John the Baptist prepared for him. God anointed him. And in the book of Acts, we hear how Peter walked with him. And Peter gave witness to his experience with Jesus, saying, you know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And you know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached? What happened with Jesus? Well, we all remember how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Hear the echoes of the language from the Psalms and from Isaiah, from his baptism. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. But I want to offer a comment on this. And then I want to ask a question for us to consider. The first comment that I want to make is we have to understand that the gospel that Christians proclaim is not a generic message of hope. It's not principally a worldview or a moral code. The gospel that Christians preach is not an admonition to do better and to be good. It's not a vague encouragement to have faith, and if you do, things are going to turn out okay. That is not the Christian gospel. Now, the Christian gospel is that in and through the person of Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. That this very Jesus of Nazareth, how very particular rabbi in first century Palestine, through this person, God is reconciling the world to himself. He's the fulfillment of the promises given through the law and the prophets and throughout the Psalms. 
Through Jesus, God is restoring the dignity and the worth of humans that are made in the image of God. The miracles that Jesus performed, casting out demons, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk and the deaf to hear, they firstly, and then the resurrection of Jesus, finally affirmed that he is the chosen one through whom God's kingdom is being established on earth. The message that Christians preach is not a vague, generic, bargain bin message of hope. It's a specific proclamation about what God is doing in and through the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to God. The, the, the downside of reducing the Christian message to morality by reducing the gospel of the kingdom down to hope generically or faith or generic Christian principles is that we inadvertently recuse ourselves in the process of the proper response to God's anointed one. And the proper response is submitting to the king of this kingdom. And along the way, we permit ourselves to try to use him as a prop for our own kingdom of comfort. If Jesus is only here to serve as like a vague buttress to our own kingdom of self, we are missing the, the message that he's proclaiming, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And furthermore, we run the risk of making Christian mission a loosely guided quest just to make people feel less miserable, though that matters, because life is hard. Or we run the risk of making Christian mission into a humanist campaign to fix the world all on our own as if we had that kind of power. I think it's really important. As you think about, maybe you came today because you want your faith to matter more to you or to play a more central role in your life this year. I think it's really, really important to remember the concreteness and the specificity of what we believe. That in and through the person of Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. And that Jesus himself is building a kingdom in which the blind receive sight and captives are freed and the poor have good news preached to them. And by trusting in this Jesus and following this Jesus, we can be a part of his family, adopted into his kingdom. And like the psalmist saying, we can say to God, you are my God, my father, my rock, my strength. And we can hear the heavenly father say over us, you are my son or you are my daughter with you. I am well pleased. It's a very, very particular, specific message of what God is doing in and through the person of Jesus. Remember that it's not some, some abstract idea or Christian principles alone. It's are you engaging with the person of Jesus Christ? Now, I have politics on my mind because I was just fascinated with watching the house figure out the train wreck of the last couple of days. But makes me think that when politicians tell you that they are people of faith, I want you to consider, is it this kind of the, the gospel of the kingdom that they're espousing? Or are they co-opting God's name to build their own kingdom with your vote? Let's keep Christianity Christ-like. Let's keep it concrete and wrestling with and dealing with and coming to terms with the person of Jesus Christ who by uh, pledging our allegiance to him stakes his claim on every aspect of our lives. He will not be relegated to the category of religion or faith. He wants the whole thing. He said, if anyone, anyone would come after me, 
They must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We feel the cost. He said, if any man would lose their life for my sake, I promise you they will find it. We must understand the gospel that Christians proclaim is not a generic message of hope, but the specific message of what God is doing in and through the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to himself. And there's a comment. Here's a question. In thinking about your own faith, in thinking about your own life of following Jesus the Messiah, in thinking about our church, is the gospel we profess and the kingdom that we live in resulting in the kind of things that happened in and through the ministry of Jesus Christ? Is the gospel we profess and the kingdom we live in resulting in the blind receiving sight and people in darkness being illuminated, those who are far off being brought to a place of belonging? Now, I've talked a lot about it in the last five years of our church that we don't chase fruits. I don't care too much about numerical growth or, or, or metrics. I don't, I don't know what our attendance is most weeks. I don't care about things like that too much. We talked about early in the life of our church a lot, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we've just said, it's really important for us to understand that, that fruit grows indirectly. <clears throat> We're not fruitful in life by trying to be fruitful. We're fruitful by trying to remain in Jesus. But there is an appropriate balance in our lives, something to consider. A tree is known by its fruits. Is the fruit of our abiding with the gospel that we believe in, the kingdom that we live in, is the fruit of our abiding the kind of new life and transformation foreseen by Isaiah? If it isn't, it may well be the case that you and I have left the bleeding edge of ministry where Jesus lives. After his resurrection, the angels said to the women who came to visit him at the tomb, Jesus has gone ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. And it could be that we're hanging out waiting for Jesus to join us when he's out at the edge where people are living in the darkness, embodying his own message of hope to the kingdom of God that he's establishing. Now, there's an appropriate balance of what, in the Christian life of what we could call input and output, really simply. Input being the substance of our own development. We need to study the Bible, we need to pray, we need Christian, friends, Christian friendships. And we also need good output in our lives. It's doing the work of ministry, of caring for others, of sharing the gospel, of developing relationships with those who are outside of the family of God. If you're experiencing boredom or apathy in your life with God, uh, it's very possible, and it's my conviction, that your input probably exceeds your output. Like if you're bored in your life with God and you don't interact with anybody outside of the church or your private Christian school, and you're like, maybe what will break up my boredom is another class. I think your ratios are probably off. And if you're experiencing burnout in your life with God, you could have the opposite problem that you're giving, 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 and you don't have enough input and you're finding yourself worn out. Furthermore, I think we need the proper balance of time with fellow believers for the sake of encouragement and friendship, and we need time with people who don't yet know the Lord and aren't yet citizens of the kingdom, people who are poor, and people who are sick, and people who are lonely in particular. 
The problem is that for many of us, we live and die in Christian ghettos. We only ever spend time with people who already know the Lord, people who are already like us, people who we are comfortable with because they fit into our ethnic or our socioeconomic you know, strata. We forget what it's like to live without Jesus. It's been a really long time since we've seen someone encounter the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ. Or it could be that, that perhaps we're quite at home in, in circles that aren't with other believers, but we're not present with them as Christians. We're present as chameleon Christians. We're around these people, but we're keeping our life with God to ourselves. We see that Jesus lived at the bleeding edge of ministry. He retreated to be with his father. He was constantly surrounded by his friends, but he had budgeted in his life to spend time with those who are far off. This is the, the message that Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. This message of the kingdom is for you and your children, your close people, and those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. We will turn five years old as a church in a couple of weeks. It's not quite, if you think about the journey from childhood to, you know, adulthood, we're not quite there as a five-year-old. But I was struck in thinking recently about um, uh, John Tyson adapted the work of Richard Rohr. Rohr, I don't generally advise reading, but he has some great stuff on transitions into manhood. He says that one of the shifts that happen in a movement from boyhood to manhood is the movement from obsession with self to giving yourself for the sake of others. And as I think about us as a church turning five years old. We are potty trained, praise be to God as a church. We're starting kindergarten this fall. But I see us needing to make an appropriate shift where we are, we're, we're well established in many ways as a church. And we need to make an appropriate shift in our individual life with God and our life together as a church from self and establishing the self to doing what we do for the sake and the benefit of others. We need to be, and you need to be, a fixture in the lives of people who don't yet know Jesus and in their life as a Christian. We need to show up in places where his name is not honored, where his power is not known, where he's gotten a bad reputation because he's been poorly represented by other people who bear his name. And when we are asked by people to explain the hope that animates our lives, to be able and ready to share not a vague or a generic message of hope, but the particular message of Jesus, the anointed Son of God, who makes the blind see and the lame walk and raises the dead, and his kingdom is even now at hand. A kingdom in which we learn to say with the psalmist, you are my father, my God, my rock, my strength. And oh, the gift of learning that the father also says over us, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. In the, the first chapter of John's gospel, he summarizes how Jesus first went to God's covenant people. He says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who would receive him, to those who believe in his name, we, he gave the right to becoming children of God. And many of us have continued to spend our lives in Christ among those who are already his own, who are getting tired of the message, ambivalent about following Jesus. The, the whole conversation is just so tired, and it could be that we just need to sow the seed of the gospel to those who are not yet of his own. 
We need to spend time with people who aren't followers of Jesus that they might know the goodness and the love and the power of Jesus Christ and to be citizens of his kingdom that is at hand among us. May it be true of us that in increasing measure, we take the authority and the resources and the wisdom and the knowledge that God has entrusted to us and we join Jesus in putting those things to work for the sake of others. And as a result of that, may more men and women be adopted into God's family, made co-heirs with Christ. What a gift that will be. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.